Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. I'm Andrew Montessi, joined by AFL legend Warren Treadray. How's it going, Treaders? I'm good, Monty. How are you? There's plenty happening in the world of uh, what sport and business all in one. Absolutely, mate. We've got another chunky wrap to get through, so let's just get stuck into it. And of course, we are going to start with the AFL. Bit of an interesting one, Treaders. You're talking about private ownership. What's happening? Well, I just sit back and I look at um, what really um, really spiked my interest on this one is the Carlton unrest around Michael Voss, um, the chairman, Bruce Matheson, Pokey Barron, massive Carlton fan, apparently lives up on the Gold Coast. He's always been around the, the decision-making with the Blues. I think he give, gave them two, um, two pubs. So he's a big financial backer, so he doesn't just talk. He, he supports as well. But... The, the unrest around Michael Voss or how his performance has been and whether he's a good enough coach or they actually picked Michael Voss who missed out to the previous coach, David Teague, instead of going after Ross Lyon. We know Ross Lyon, if you take yourself back, uh, what was it, 18 months, two years, um, he was interested in Carlton. As soon as they said, we're going to run a process, he said, I'm getting out of here. So uh, we know that what St Kilda did recently, they went and headhunted Ross Lyon, got their me. And so everyone's now making the comparison between St Kilda and where the Blues fit. And it got me thinking, we've got this massive TV deal through to 2031, $4.5 billion, seven years to go, pay TV with Foxtel, free to air with Channel 7, um, streaming rights, the whole lot. But my bid is, where are people going to be consuming um, their media there? And, and I, I've always had the thought that at some stage, because the TV networks run at a huge loss, their sporting product, they use it as a cross-promote and to get eyeballs for their other products in news and uh, Married at First Sight if you're a Channel 9 or you know, Farmer Wants a Wife on Channel 7, all those sorts of different shows as a, as a cross-promoting marketing tool. But when the, the deal is up 2031, can we be confident with the growth in the game that there's going to be more money available? You know, we, we've all, all seen financially the markets have sort of dropped a fair bit. We've also seen crypto markets crash. We've seen property still skyrocketing. But what's the situation going to look like? And it just got me thinking when I was watching the NBA uh, finals recently between the Golden State Warriors and the Lakers, I think private, private ownership is something the AFL don't want. But I think that's what they will become. Only because I sit back and go, how are we going to fund this model, keep paying all this money if the broadcast rights hold or if they don't grow as much as they could or, you know, COVID effectively um, trained people to stay at home and not go to games. So I've seen it in America with the NBA. I've seen it with the NFL. There's a lot of private ownership. There's big money in private ownership because of the money and the, the digital data and, you know, and the broadcast rights can bring. But Australia's only so big. So it got me thinking, is that the next big thing for AFL? Yeah, and I think it's an interesting one. Uh, one of the major limitations for AFL is just that it is a, it's an exclusively 
national sport. So the growth is just capped. Um, so it's really just a matter of time. The broadcast money just cannot continue to grow at an exponential rate as long as the market is as limited as it is in Australia. So, yeah, it's an interesting one, mate. I mean, how far off do you reckon it would be? I think it'd have to be 2030 at least, 2035, I don't know, 2040 maybe we get to that stage. But, you know, if we look at NBL. We spoke to Grant Kelly, the uh, 36ers chairman, uh, on the big deal last week. And you know, that's a classic example of how it works. I think they've done really well. You know, Andrew Bogut brought into Sydney. I know Craig Hutchison, who um, SEN, um, Sports Entertainment Network, has got a, a large share of the Wildcats. So clearly their valuations are going really well in that market. And they don't have a free-to-air partner that just sort of plays it all out, you know, for a massive broadcast check. Um, obviously it's on Fox, and it has a niche following. We've seen the A-League. That's the other side of it too. A lot of the A-League is um, privately owned, but hasn't necessarily been successful in their latest TV deal. They signed away and their their viewer numbers are way down. So um, it gets me thinking that people with um, deep pockets, provided it works really well and they can get a return on investment, it's what happens in um, overseas. You know, how many times have, have Man United fans wanted to vote the Glaziers out? Well, you know, Arsenal fans wanted to vote the Cronkies out. You know, these people are sports investors. We've seen Manchester City's model very similar where they've got multiple teams in multiple sports based in multiple locations, uh, multiple, um, locations all around the world. So it's just got me thinking that I think it is probably the, the next uh, option on the horizon for AFL because you can't all have AFL governed boards reporting to AFL all controlled by AFL. I think the genuine, if, if you went to a private ownership model, your then commission would be more accountable to the to the owners and to the game than they are now in terms of pretty much they just control the game and tell everyone what to do. Um, so I think in terms of fans, uh, owners would have more reliance on fans to keep them happy because it does affect their financial model, um, yeah, in saying that, we're dealing with a salary cap where there's no real luxury tax other than footy department spend. But I think it's a, I think it's a road worth discovering if you know what I mean. You know, it's certainly not the bitumen perfectly um, laid down road with, uh, with nice clear uh, lines on it. It's a little bit of the the, the rougher foot, uh, terrain. Um, but I think it could be massively rewarding for an AFL or an NRL to look at this model. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to, it's going to be a little while away, but uh, the conversations will certainly start flowing. I mean, come back to uh, Bruce Matheson, who obviously kind of flagged these initial comments, but he was he was having a real crack at the Blues. I mean, what, what are some of the issues he was raising? Well, he was almost just saying that effectively the board was split on the decision for the coach. So they went the option with Michael Voss, which he sort of said was the e- easy option. Um, but, you know, until it's, on the inside, but Carlton's had a history of, you know, yeah, or maybe the, the old Ross Lyon call was why they were thinking that, oh, we went for Malthouse and kicked out Ratton, who was doing quite well, and that didn't work out. So then they put in an inexperienced guy, and I think Chris Judd was famously said in uh, Channel 9's footy classified, we don't want someone with trainer wheels, yet six months later they've appointed um, an inexperienced coach in David Teague, and that didn't work. But Carlton's been an interesting club. They've been a massive club, but they haven't won a premiership since 95, and that was effectively... Uh, before the competition went totally national in terms of there were more teams. Port Adelaide came in, Fremantle would come in that year. Um, then you obviously seen the northern licences of um, 
Greater Western Sydney and Gold Coast. So a lot has changed then. Um, the old days of the Carlton's, Collingwood's, Essendon's, Richmond's just coming with a check, walking into South Australia, Western Australia, buying up the best talent. It is a really difficult situation right now, and we'll get to some of the teams that are struggling, but it's not a quick fix. But his argument was, hey, if Collingwood can go from, I think, 17th in 2020 or 21 in the COVID years to now in a situation where they're playing off and very close to, you know, they're top of the table at the moment, they're the best team in, in the game in terms of form. Uh, they've recently played off in a prelim final last year. If they can do it, why can't we do it? And they were actually hamstrung with massive contracts to Trelaw, massive contract to um, Grundy. Um, they've been able to move those out, reposition uh, their salary cap, and they've been almost risk-taking, not risk-taking, but put their fundamentals, done a hard reset, knowing that their talent and the Dacos kids and all these superstars are still um, about to join their club or uh, at their club already. So he was almost ditching for being not daring, being careful, um, wanting quick fixes, um, and not willing to make tough calls. But he, he's been brutal over the journey. It's almost like every time Carlton's struggling, um, he can't help himself answering a phone call because he loves his club that much. But he's frustrated because he hasn't seen him play in finals for many, many years. Yeah. And what a, <clears throat> excuse me, what about the other struggling clubs? You know, you've got the Hawks, Roos, West Coast, you know, already kind of set up as the easy beats of the comp. How do you think it affects the dynamic of the comp generally? Is it is it fair to expect a like a fairly even competition every year, or or is this this just part of the game? Oh, I think it's part of the game, but you, it's funny you, you look at the ladder, and um, before the weekend's game, I think two wins separated first and thirteenth or something, so or three wins, so it's not much pretty early in the season. But in saying that, I saw North Melbourne playing the weekend against Port Adelaide um, down in Hobart, and now, they, they, they had enough footy. They won uncontested and contested disposals, which is key statistics, but they just gave the ball up. You know what I mean? They just out-pressured, fumbled, weren't good enough. So I look at it, and this week in particular, they were almost calling it the Harley Reid Cup. It was between Hawthorne play West Coast because they're saying, well, those two are the bottom two, and they're the ones that are probably going to finish bottom. So whoever loses that is pretty much going to get the best player in Australia. So I don't think it's that good when people are already talking about that for the AFL. I get that it's really competitive in that middle batch, and no one can really say who's going to make the eight at the moment because you've got teams like Geelong, who three weeks ago, everyone's talking about the dynasty's over because I think they lost their first three games of the season, and all of a sudden they put together another number of wins together, um, and now they're sitting around the finals mark again, but it's not good. But what it does do is actually highlights, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the new license in Tasmania coming. Well, what's Tasmania going to get from history, what we know? When Port Adelaide got, they got four uncontracted players and could name any young kid in South Australia, right? So it took out the market. When Gold Coast got, I think they got six or seven uncontracted players. One was Gary Ablett Jr. Earned about two million bucks a year, front-loaded. And then they got the best talent, heap of the best talent in, in the northern uh, States, but also in the drafts. You know, you look at Dion Prestia. Um, you, know, you can go through a number of players. Tom Lynch, who's now captain of Richmond. Stephen May, who's a premiership player with Melbourne. So they've had the talent. So what's that suggest to you? GWS comes in as well, similar thing. But Tasmania is going to get all the picks. So if I'm a Hawthorne, or a North Melbourne, or a West Coast supporter, I'm like, we better draft really well right now. right? And this is a discussion even teams like Port Adelaide, who... You know, if they go really well and play finals or, you know, they've got older players, what do they do with their decision-making? Everyone's got to be nimble to think that, hang on, a lot of this 
draft picks are going to be going to the new license in Tasmania pretty soon. So you've got to get your house in order. And for me, uh, Hawthorne's been wonderfully successful over the journey. Uh, West Coast won a premiership back in 2018, and they got it wrong. But, they, but what they did is most people would have done. They gave up a fair bit to get Tim Kelly. You know, they didn't expect Elliot Yo, one of their best players, to miss so much football. Shuey to miss so much football. Nat Newey to miss so much football. McGovern to miss so much football. You just add it up. So their best players aren't available. They're injured all the time. So when you do that, it's going to bite you in the butt. But North Melbourne, ever since uh, the Brad Scott era of having to do a hard reset, maybe they went too hard. But these teams look like they're going to stay down there for quite some time unless they can retain their talent, give their kids a go. I look at North's midfield. Yeah, they've got some very good players, good young players. But it's going to take time to flourish. Um, and that's the challenge and that's the part. You know, If you're Hawthorne, you sit back and go, well, we won four flags over the journey between 2008 and I think 2016 was their recent one, but it just proves that the game is unforgiving, and you're gonna, you know, you're gonna cop your whack if you're not performing, and and you've made poor decisions on your list because you can't, like English Premier League teams, go and just spend 100 million on a superstar player to get you out of jail. Hmm. Now bouncing across to the NRL, what's going on with Craig Bellamy? Well, Craig Bellamy had pretty much alluded to the fact that he was going to finish as coach of the Melbourne Storm, but. He announced in the last 24 hours that there's a bit of a backflip going on. And after Cam Munster, his superstar player, who ignored the um, uh, the Dolphins and, and signed on long-term in Melbourne, uh, Andy's leaders approached him and said he wanted him to stay. He said he was really angry a while ago. He knew that his time was up. He was just going to retire. But there's been a big back, backflip on the cards. And by his own admission, um, Bellamy has said, you know, uh, two months ago I was out. Hang on, I've just re-signed on for 2024. So... Arguably the most successful coach in that journey. Um, I think he's a five-time premiership coach. Two of those were removed for salary cap breach. But yeah, he, he's been a masterstroke, a superstar coach. And it's great that he stays in the game. And he's hungry to stay in the game after admitting maybe I'm not. But something, something's hitting inside to say I want to go on. The uh, news isn't so good for Dragons coach Anthony Griffin. Now, I think at the time of recording, I think he's fronting up to a board meeting and it's not looking good. Like he's he's going to get the uh, get the bullet, it seems. Uh, so, yeah, not so good for them. Uh, St. George Illawarra are in disarray on and off the field. Six straight losses. Uh, players are turning on each other. It's all yeah, it was there. only four or five weeks ago. Everyone in the media goes, hey, they've got four winnable games here. Could get them some confidence. But now they've gone on to lose six straight. So um, as we know, it's unforgiving when you're at the top. We talk about Michael Voss. You talk about Bellamy, you know, legendary coach Kevin Sheedy back in the journey. Many times it, it comes down to um, your, your support on the board and you've been able to deliver uh, something for the horizon, uh, sell, a, sell a product and sell an idea and an ideal that hopefully people can grab onto so you can, can survive. But it looks like he's gonski. Yep, and things can turn pretty quickly for a coach, so it's a, it's a tough gig. Now, Cricket Australia have dropped their fixture for a bumper summer of cricket. There's a fair bit to unpack. What's happening, Treaders? Yeah, well, this is, this is massive, and, you know, it's, there's reports, you know, we go through this situation here, you look about South Australia's push to still try and claim the uh, news, <laughs> New Year's test from uh, New South Wales. I don't know if that's posturing or if that's an ability to negotiate a better deal for themselves uh, in the long run. But it's pretty much a three-year situation that Cricket Australia has rolled out. Uh, Sydney has been named to host the, the uh, New Year's Day test. Uh, it's been reported in the Sydney Morning Herald that it still remains massively under threat 
from a multi-million dollar South Australian push. And this is all part of the um, special events push that uh, Peter Malinowskis, the Labor government uh, premier in South Australia, pretty much put into his budget to say, hey, we'll bring back the uh, V8s, the old Clipsal 500, the Velo 500, which he did late last year. Also Live Golf, we talked about it on this show, which was, uh, I think, about $14 million spent, but a massive event that South Australians love. And this is the other one to say, hey, we love our test matches and we don't, uh, we want to try and pinch the New Year's one from Sydney. I still think that's unlikely because, you know, the weight that New South Wales and Victoria in particular have in Cricket Australia uh, is far bigger and better than South Australia. But if we look at it, the, the SACA Chief Executive, Charlie Hodgson, has said that Adelaide has been guaranteed India and England tests in mid-December over the following two years. But they almost have to take a little bit of a hit um, for this coming year um, because... Uh, They've actually lost their day-night test and they've lost their mid-December test, which is normally the second test. And it's going back to when I was a kid, and that's a long, long time ago, Monty, where they'll actually play the men's test versus West, West Indies for the second time in two years between the 17th and 21st of January at Adelaide Oval. So it's almost a little bit like, okay, we'll give up day-night this year. Yeah, we'll take your West Indies for the second year, but as long as you give us England and India which are the big ticket items. Um, and I suspect that they will potentially be no, day-night tests um, for 2024 and 2025. But it, the season does start in Perth um, versus Pakistan, followed by the typical Melbourne um, Boxing Day test, then to Sydney, as we say, the New Year's test, and then the men's tests, and that's three against Pakistan. And then there's two against the West Indies at Adelaide Oval, one on starting the 17th of Jan, and then the Gabba on the 25th, and they've got a day-nighter too. So there's plenty going Gabba. On. It's falling apart. It's the falling Gabba's apart, falling, the Gabba. Yeah, yeah, they're going to rebuild it for the Olympics. So, um, But, yeah, they'll get the day-night test, and they haven't had that for a number of years. So um, I love day-night cricket. I certainly love the traditional test, but um, it's just funny how I never realised how much money talks in cricket in terms of who gets what test and where. I just thought back in the kid it was always um, – it was always the first test year, it was a Gabba. Then it was the MCG. Then it was Sydney. Then it was Adelaide. Then it was Perth. And if there was a six-test series, Hobart would be thrown in too. But you just realise how much posturing and, and bidding in the background um, takes place for, for governments to get their tests and to get their events. Yeah, the economy behind a, a test match is is huge for, for the entire state and the city. So... You can understand why, that's for sure. Now, Jason Day has uh, finally broken a massive drought, Treaders. Yeah, he certainly has. He's won the uh, Byron Nelson um, Classic, breaking an incredible five-year drought you touched on. He also pocketed a cool $2.6 million. Former world number one golfer was ranked 112 back in January. He's now... 20 in the world and is rising fast. You know, he ha he's gone through a hell of a lot. He's had a lot of injuries. He's lost his mother many years ago. And it just so happens that when he won the Byron Nelson Classic, uh, he did it on Mother's Day. So um, I think he had his four kids in tow, his wife in tow. He'd been through a lot. But he's a superstar golfer and he was dominating the world and then just fell off the face of the earth just simply from injuries and other personal challenges he's had. So it was great to see the Aussie back in Adam and, uh, and dominating like we were accustomed to many years ago. Now, there's no doubt that uh, this Aussie is dominating. It has been for quite a while now. Sam Kerr, she scored the only goal in Chelsea's FA Cup win over Manchester United. It was their third straight. 
She did it in style, of course, with uh, her traditional backflip, but this time in front of a record crowd of 77,000 plus at Wembley. Yeah, it is amazing. And this was all about a week since she had to hold the Australian flag at the uh, coronation for Prince, uh, for the for the king. So yeah. she's had, had enough... Uh, She's had enough uh, distractions anyway, but she's yeah scored a wonderful goal. She's an absolute superstar. You know, she's probably our best international athlete right now in terms of performance. And and I get we've got you know superstars playing in the NBA at the moment and people dominating from all over the world. But you, you sit back and, and look at this one and you go, well, there's not many others that can claim what she's claimed. You know, she's taken on the world. She dominates when she plays for Australia. She always comes back and represented us. She doesn't do the Ben Simmons who decides to pull out last minute all the time and she delivers and can put the ball in the back of the net as good as anyone in the world. Yeah, she's unreal. And as a as a sporting brand, she's she's massive. Back in our, our early Pixar days when we were doing these talent deals, I remember she was getting these little tiny deals um, you know, you could you could book Sammy Kerr to come out to an event for five hundred bucks, you know, or less sometimes. And now it's like, gosh, she's just blown up and uh, just so entertaining, just pure entertainment, uh, and just a really good ambassador from a brand perspective. So it's awesome to see. Now we talked about seventy seven thousand uh, women soccer fans absolutely loving it. Uh, the fan experience was a little bit different for Barcelona. They claimed the La Liga title uh, with a 4-2 win over their rivals, Espanyol. What happened after the celebrations on the field, Treaders? Well, Monty, they were celebrating as they do. It, it's always nice when it's on the arch-rivals turf, but that was a bit too much for the fans because uh, they invaded the pitch and they tried to attack the Barcelona players. Um, they, uh, yeah, they scattered back to the change rooms, it was sort of really serious. But if you look at the vision, it, it's something a little bit like at the Benny Hill. Everyone's just running for cover. It was, um, yeah, invaded the pitch, tried to attack the players, forced to flee. Also reported hooded men tried to get into the change rooms, bashing the doors down, had chains, bars, battens and other objects. We shouldn't be laughing, but this is just crazy. Now, and, and this is a wonderful performance from Barcelona. Everyone goes, oh, Barcelona dominate, rah, rah. But Barcelona had to shed players last year because they had to sell off some of their media rights for a period of time. They had to sell off some of their merchandising because they'd spent way too much money over a long period of time and couldn't balance the books for financial fair play. So for them to beat Real Madrid to the title, uh, Iniesta, who's a superstar player for Barcelona in his own right, first year as manager, wins the title. Uh, I think it's been a pretty impressive performance. But certainly uh, when you sell it, you're entitled to celebrate uh, your championship. But... I think if they had their time again, they might wait for it to do it in the change rooms because uh, <laughs> it's pretty much rubbing up the opposition the wrong way. And yeah, over there, they're a little bit crazy. Yeah, certainly are. Now, interesting one. US sports retail giant Fanatics has bought the US operations of Australian-owned bookie points bet. It's quite interesting. Uh, if you look at the Fanatics, just a huge business. We'll break it down in a sec. Uh, but they bought it for only... US $150 million, which is pretty cheap, Treaders, given what's happening yeah, that's in a, the US sports betting. Yeah, that's a bargain, isn't it? Um, it's just, they're, they're predicted to double the value um, to as much as $167 billion by 2030. So, um, yeah, that's the, that's the, bet, the US sports betting market because it's, it's relatively new. 
Like it's only been in the last few years they've been able to kind of tackle this. Yeah, and this is and any Australian who you know whether you're a betting person, let's be honest, you watch a lot of sport. There's betting ads through it. Um, points bet, points bet of the crew um, that have Shaq do their ads, swinging golf clubs and hey Aussie and all these sorts of things. Um, but what it is that they've sold their US operations. Probably, let's be be frank, it's it's a pretty hard market to crack. You know, you look at three six five, you look at the big ones that are. Uh, all over the world, um, they're still massive in Australia. PointsBet will still be owned by PointsBet by themselves in Australia, but they've sold the US operations. And, um, yeah, it really is the smaller players are struggling a little bit to keep up. But the Fanatics are a beast of the sports industry and yeah, valued at $31 billion. But this is probably an area you know better than I in terms of what other stuff they own. It's, it's almost yeah. like they've just thrown a net over everything. Yeah, they started in online merch and retail, like really well known in that space. And uh, but they've just gone on this expansion, really aggressive approach. Just just in the last year, they've acquired the iconic brand Mitchell and Ness, uh, acquired Tops. Then they've done new deals with WWE, NHL. They've done deals for the 2028 Olympics, college basketball. They've expanded their deal with Nike, and then they've gone into betting. So they're really going after the fan in just about every way. So they opened their, their first retail sports book. They opened up uh, betting in New York. And then they've obviously just done the, uh, the points bet deal. So, you know, they're valued at 31 bill at the moment, just a lazy 31 bill. And, uh, but they're, they're going pretty hard. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see um, some more acquisitions and, and aggressive moves. It's massive over there, isn't it, this stuff? It's, you know, you, you just think buying a jersey or buying your pair of Nikes or, you know, acquiring your bits and pieces, putting on a bet, you do it all. You know, they're effectively creating a one-stop shop, aren't they? Um, with all their different assets they've got and ability to pretty much buy up the market, very much like we see in any or every other industry around the world. While we're talking big deals, I mean, taking a look at eSports, uh, one of the fastest growing sports in the world, the European Union has just approved Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activis- Activision Blizzard on uh, on Monday. And that's a huge win for the Xbox maker. This has been talked about for a long time. It's been held up by regulators. Sony opposed the deal. Um, so pretty interesting there. That's, uh, but, but what's kind of weird about it is it's now opened up in the European Union, but the UK's blocked it. So there's still a bit to play out there. Yeah, and you know, as they say, regulators have pretty much been evaluating whether the deal would harm competition. Well, a lot of these deals harm competition, let's be honest. And the reason why Sony's opposed the deal is because they're a, a direct rival of Xbox. So um, that, that's really weird. And, and its beliefs are still be weighing up you know, weighed up by Australia and New Zealand. So where this goes, I don't know. This this is the bit that, you know, I've always struggled in the, the, the e-gaming space. and But it, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? You know, it, sports effectively are played indoors more often. And I'm not talking basketball. You're talking computer games. You're talking virtual reality. You're talking the money that's offered. Some of the esports people and some of the biggest money in the world for, for playing computer games. Hmm. Yeah, the market in Asia especially is insane. Like we have no idea. Like it's, they pack out stadiums and it's it's pretty crazy. 
Now, we've obviously been following uh, Jock Landale last couple of weeks, playing for the Phoenix Suns in the playoffs. Uh, they, they bowed out at the hands of Denver, but Landale was super impressive off the bench and even got his first playoff start alongside Kevin Durant. What's the latest with him? Well, the, the thing is, the situation, the Suns' new owners already sacked the coach, Monty Williams, and Landale's a restricted free agent. He, he's gone, you know, Spoken at length how he wants to stay and he wants to hang around, uh, hang around in Arizona. Loves the clubs, loves the players. Defended other players are out of form, but reality is, um, yeah, you often see situations like this. I, I remember when Joe Ingles was out of contract many years ago, and you know it was talk he was going to go, and then his team at the time um, paid up big time. Utah, they paid him a five or six year deal for a role player on the average about ten million bucks a year or whatever it was. So. He'll get paid. He has to get paid because at the end of the day, he's performed better than most. He hopes it's with the Suns. If it's not with the Suns, it'll be someone that'll pay big time. And, and I take myself back to a situation when um, I was watching the players between Golden State and the Cavs. The Cavs beat the Warriors in the NBA Finals. Matthew Dellavedova played a hell of a series, somehow trying to blanket Steph Curry. Um, he was physically exhausted. He was generally getting paid about two million bucks a year compared to many others on 30s and 40s and 50 million. Um, he then got his payday where he went off to Milwaukee on a five or six year deal for 50 million uh, US dollars. So I, I liken that situation very similar. Uh, it, yeah, you hope um, the new coach, whoever comes in, really likes what he does. Yeah, there's no doubt because they've fallen short, they'll make change. Uh, Chris Paul, will he survives? He's on big money. He's been injured a lot of the time. So. Yeah, you know, with all these cases, new owners will bring in new coaches. New coaches will bring in new players. So, you know, whether he stays or not, he's set to get paid. For sure. Now, speaking of getting paid, the NFL ensures that everyone gets paid, uh, including their commercial departments. They commercialize anything and everything, including the announcement of their schedule for 2023, which has just come out. Usual event-based approach. They've got the TV shows. They've got the big social build-up. They've got the PR on all the major US networks. Uh, but how does the actual, what's their strategy in terms of building uh, a schedule, Treaders? Well, this is really interesting for mine because I always compare it to, you know, the NRL or the AFL where NRL to a certain amount of blocks. The AFL will always roll out your 22 rounds of the season. Now they roll out about 11 rounds of the season and work out to prevent fixturing a big Melbourne club on multiple Friday night or Saturday night games and not rating and, and being poor performers for that year, which they didn't uh, see coming. So I love the NFL's theory. They, they effectively front row... Uh, front load their schedule with the biggest possible games as a strategy. So the whole idea is play the big games in prime time, play them early in the season, build the hype, build the momentum. Uh, for example, Aaron Rodgers' debut with the Jets is on Monday night. Opener. Monday night football was the biggest night in the NFL. Um, and momentum is clearly important to the media partners um, that air one game a week, such as like Amazon or ESPN or NBC, um, they want their bank for buck, those guys, whereas their other broadcasters, Fox and CBS, typically want a more balance because they've got more spread over the season. They've got more games. They don't want to just fire it away early and look after the smaller broadcasters as one game a week. They want to have it evenly spread over a period of time. So I get it. I like it. Um, play the big games early and get that through, and then the hype will remain. But um, I'm not sure how that would compare to other times because imagine if you have played your big games, you've got a wonderful start, and then you've got a heap of dead rubbers where you've got teams you've got no chance of playing um, towards the Super Bowl or the finals um, and the playoffs, or 
you know, early days. And then, then you're playing against, you know, superstar teams, you're playing against cellar dwellers who could barely put a team together or don't have any quarterbacks left, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's an interesting dynamic, but everyone generally takes, yeah, every sporting industry in the world wants the big teams and the best teams and the best performed teams to play as often against each other as possible. How that rolls out, they'd have analytics on all sorts of analysis on why this works for them, how it creates more money for their broadcasting rights and their ratings and how many eyeballs get to watch the game because that is the biggest game in America. Hmm. I like it. I mean, you you just don't know how a season's going to play out. So all you do at the start of a season, all you know is based on how the season before ended. So as a viewer, as a punter, you're going to get excited about games based on the outcome of the season before. So it makes sense that they're going to bring together uh, some of the, you know, the best performing teams from last year and really stack it at the front and then kind of hope that as the season plays out that some of those other matchups that may not have been billed as big games become something because those teams emerge later in the year. So I like it. It's quite interesting. Now, uh, on the NFL as well, uh, just a quick one. We, we obviously followed the, uh, the ownership deal for the Washington Commanders. It's finally been done. Dan Snyder has sold to a group led by Josh Harris. Terms of the deal not disclosed, but the group's reportedly agreed to pay $6.5 billion US for the franchise, which is a world record sale for a sports franchise. Yeah, what's funny though, to be honest, the Washington Commanders aren't one of the teams that sort of come to mind when you when you follow sports. Um, but you know, six point five billion. Anyone who's been well fortunate enough to invest in professional sport in America for the last five years, valuations have gone through the roof. You know, you remember Mark Cuban talking about when he bought his side and you're in a situation where you go, Oh, you know, Dallas or where they at, I paid this much and now they're worth this much. Gold State Warriors is arguably one of the biggest franchises. You know, the Bus family who still own the Lakers, it's huge. So, ever it seems any person, um, you know, the Cronky family, I think they've got the, uh, they've certainly got Arsenal, which I'm a fan of, which we won't talk about because they've fallen over the last hurdle of the EPL, but I think they've also got the Rams. So, you know, these people are investing in this and off the back of TV money, uh, money coming into the game, supporters um, following the game. The valuations have gone through the roof. Um, and to be fair, the, the argument now is like the commanders is clearly they wanted to sell. They think it'd lock in our profits. Let's move out of this sport. It's pretty 24-7. Uh, it's not like you can have a passive investment in a sporting club. Now, I know LeBron James has got a share of, um, of Liverpool through their holding company. But if you're one of the major owners, it's a massive hands-on process. It's, it's almost like you're, you're raising a child. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not a situation where you can just... You know, put some money into some shares in the market and just watch it flourish. It's very hands-on. It's very pull more money out of your pocket to invest in players, to invest in facilities, to build new stadium. You know, and, and even as we've reported on this show um, podcast, where there's other teams that want to relocate, you know, and, and go through those opportunities potentially to look at you know what's best for the business going forward. Yep. Now, traders, to finish up, you've got a. A nice uh, touching story that's come across. I mean, normally the last couple of weeks we've had a bit of a laugh, but you've actually come across uh, something that that warms the heart. Yeah, I was, I'm just surfing the net, looking through you know overseas sport and bits and pieces, and I found this touching moment from a rugby league star carried a terminally ill teammate in a marathon. Uh, Kevin Sinfield carried his mate Rob Burrow over the finishing line in emotional scenes at the Leeds Marathon. 
the two Leeds Rhino legends have been raising money and awareness for those with motor neurone disease after Burrow became ill with a condition in 2019. Their inspirational, should I say, exploits um, have seen millions of dollars have raised over the last few years. But just to watch the finish, you can get it. You know, I I was able to see it on the Fox Sports website. Um, He's run a marathon. He's pushed his mate the whole way. His mate is really, really sick. Um, He grabs him. Uh, out of his uh, effectively you know, wheelchair that he pushed the whole um, whole way, throws him over the shoulder. They they walk over the line effectively, carry over the line together. Um, but yeah, it's just amazing, isn't it? That um, for all the sport and all the wonderful things sport brings you, it brings some, some tearjerkers too. So motor neurone disease is a massive one, obviously closer to home. Um, the Danaher family um, is this weekend on... Uh, used to be the Queen's birthday holiday. Now the King's birthday holiday um, between Melbourne and Collingwood. They do the big freeze promotion there too. So it's a, a, a timely reminder too that there's a lot of people doing it worse than us. For sure. And yeah, sport brings uh, brings a lot of joy, but also brings an incredible ability to raise much needed funds for um, a lot of these really important charities. Now, Treaders, that concludes our weekly wrap. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We've got an interview coming up later this week, so make sure you hit subscribe. And remember, you can get a summary of these stories delivered to you every week when you sign up for our newsletter at www.thebigdeal.au. So make sure you get on board. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.